At the beginning of season one, I made a promise to you. If this podcast gets picked up for at least another two years, I promise you I will go to an actual casino, actually count cards, and tell you whether or not an average Joe like me can beat the house. I said that in episode four of season one, how to beat the house. And since then, two years have passed, and I've turned 21, which means I can finally go to a casino. But if I'm honest, I don't really want to play blackjack. I want to play poker, because it's the game I play with all my friends, and it's the game they always beat me at. I don't know how much money I've lost to them, but it's not the money I care about. It's the pride, and I can't think of a better way to improve my game than playing against the Sharks in Vegas. I'm Ari Kagan. You're listening to Things You Don't Need to Know, and this episode is about tournament poker. Coming into this, I didn't really know much, or or really anything. I didn't even know the ranking of the hands. You could have told me that your two pair beat my three of a kind, and I would have stupidly given you the pot. And it's mistakes like these that cost me tens of dollars to my grifter friend Max. Hi, I'm Max, and I play poker with Ari. And what usually happens? I take his money. You might remember Max from various episodes, like when I tricked him into believing Bigfoot was real. Damn, he he really is real. Or when he flipped the risk board in my Take Over the World episode. Well, we can say this game ended with Max flipping the board, so... Or when he sold me his soul. Legally, I still own his soul. I Max the Caesar, hereby sell my soul to Ari Kagan in exchange for being able to drive Ari's E3 for as long as Ari says. Which makes it all the more embarrassing that I can't beat him at poker. Now I had a plan. Not only was I going to beat him, I was going to pummel him. So hard that he'd have to rebuy and rebuy again and still lose. How was I going to achieve this? It all starts with a name, Maria Konnikova. I'm Maria Konnikova. I'm a writer. Maria is the kind of writer and honestly person that I aspire to be. I've been a writer for all of my professional life, even though I do have a PhD in psychology. I've never been in academia, but I guess I'm still a psychologist, right? It still counts, but not clinical psychologist. Um, I studied decision making, then wrote about it and wrote about how we made decisions, and then accidentally became a professional poker player for a while while researching my latest book, The Biggest Bluff. See what I mean? It sounds impossible. But if Maria had gone from a complete novice to a pro in a relatively short amount of time, there was hope. How, do you, how did you even get the idea to, to write this book? I wanted to write about the role that chance plays in our lives and how we can learn to tell the difference between what's luck and what's skill. And after a very extensive search, she came across a book, The Theory of Games and Economic Behavior by John von Neumann. And it turns out that game theory came from poker and that von Neumann was a poker player and that this brilliant dude thought that poker was basically the answer to decision-making in life. And that if you could solve poker, you'd prevent nuclear war. I'm not actually exaggerating. He said that exact thing. Now, admittedly from the outside looking in, this seems ridiculous. A bunch of guys in the corner of a bar playing a card game until three in the morning, not exactly Nobel laureates. But in a lot of ways, poker is actually a lot more difficult than the game commonly associated with genius, chess. In chess, you can see everything, right? You see all the board, you see all the pieces. So chess, you can solve, and chess has been solved, and a computer can beat a human um, consistently. 
Poker is different. Poker is life. Because in life, there are unknowns, there are hidden variables. You don't see the whole board. You don't know what the pieces are. Suddenly, a piece that you thought you knew how it moved moves in a totally different way. You know, life is ziggy and zaggy. It's a game of incomplete and imperfect information. And that's poker. It's considered the benchmark for testing artificial intelligence on imperfect information decision making. And it wasn't until 2019 that an AI called Pluribus beat five professionals in a game of Texas Hold'em. It's the unpredictability of the personalities around the table, all playing different strategies, trying to find out and not get found out that makes this game so difficult. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. First, we must learn how to actually play. When you first learn the rules of the game, were you any good? Like, did you pick it up quickly? No, um, it took a while. What you have to understand is that I had really no knowledge of poker. My knowledge of poker was Rounders, the movie. So, you know, if you put me in front of Teddy KGB, I can give you the dialogue, but, but that's about it. After this interview, I watched Rounders. It stars Matt Damon and the bald guy from Being John Malkovich. I think it's a pretty good movie. What I'll definitely say is that it turned my spark of curiosity into a pilot light. If you haven't watched it, here it is sped up to 200,000 times speed. Anyway, Maria would convince nine-time World Series of Poker champion Eric Seidel to mentor her. He is the one who actually told me how many cards were in a deck. Um, it was a very embarrassing first meeting where I had prepared a lot and failed to get that basic piece of knowledge because I was positive there were 54. And he still, to this day, will not let me live it well, they're down. Kind of, they're kind of are. Yeah, exactly. He says that whenever the World Series starts playing with jokers, I'm going to win the main event. I do know how many cards are in a deck. It's 52, and I know the basic rules of poker. I also know that the game we're playing is No Limit Texas Hold'em. No limit meaning there is no limit on how much you can bet, and Texas Hold'em being a version of poker where each player is dealt two cards face down, there's a round of betting, then three community cards come face up on the table, this is called the flop, there's another round of betting, and the fourth community card, or fourth street, or the turn, is played face up on the table, there's another round of betting, and then the fifth card, aka fifth street, aka the river, comes face up on the table, there's another round of betting, and that is the hand. It's actually not all that common that we get all the way to here where everyone turns their cards face up to see who has the best hand. But in the event that you find yourself playing poker and are curious about what the best hands are, this is how it works. We're gonna go worst to best. First is high card. This is two to ace, two being the worst, ace being the best. Then it's a pair. So again, a pair of aces would be the best. A pair of twos would be the worst. A pair of twos beating any high card. I would know I've won with that. Beating one pair is two pair, then three of a kind, a straight, which would be five cards in succession, so six, seven, eight, nine, ten, for example, then a flush, which is five cards of all the same suit, a full house, three of a kind and two of a kind, for example, three aces and two kings, then four of a kind, a straight flush, same as a straight, cards in numerical succession, but all the same suit, and then a royal flush, ten jack, queen, king, ace, once again, all the same suit. You can make any of these combinations using the two cards you were dealt, plus the five community cards on the table. If you can understand all that, poker is like way easier. It took me a really long time to get the hang of it, but once I did, I was much better. And you know what? Of course I fucking was. Because if you know how the game works, obviously you'll be better. So do yourself a favor and go listen to the last two minutes 50 times. Alright, so now that you've done that, let's get into what it means to actually be good. 
Much like with anything, a lot of becoming better is about being patient with yourself. So before we get into the rest of the episode, we're going to practice our patience by listening to an ad. You may have heard of the podcast Juicy Scoop. Wondered what it is? Why aren't you listening? Well, I'm its host. Created it. Been doing it for seven years. I'm Heather McDonald of Juicy Scoop with Heather McDonald. Now, I could tell you why you should be listening to my show, but my listeners wanted to write the ad for me, and here are some of the things they said. Not your regular Juicy podcast. Catch up on all the juicy topics from Hollywood and pop culture to true crime and beyond. Heather McDonald's Juicy Scoop always has great guests, great laughs, and great gossip. It's a comedian's take on the hottest headlines. Juicy Scoop is the pop culture news you want to hear. No BS, no filter, no filler. Raw, real, and in the moment. Throw in the hilarity of amazing comedians that you'll instantly be obsessed with, a juicy crime story, and a dash of normal life in L.A. moments, and you've got yourself an amazing week of Juicy Scoop. Two episodes every week, every Tuesday and Thursday. It will never let you down. Before the break, I mentioned that Maria had convinced world champion poker player Eric Seidel to mentor her. You know, he gave me some strategy books, basically, and said, you know, I don't teach beginners. I don't teach anyone. He'd never taken students. He has two daughters, and he he didn't teach them. When one of them wanted to learn poker, he outsourced it to someone else. Um, So he said, you know, here, these are the best strategy books. Read them, um, and we'll talk. What What were the books that he recommended for you? Um, so he recommended Harrington on Hold'em. So I bought it and read the whole thing. It's a three-book series, but he only recommended the first two. Yeah, I bought both of them. I, I didn't read the second one, but it is currently in my Maybe Someday pile. They're by Dan Harrington, who has actually won the main event. Specifically the 1995 World Series of Poker Championship. And who is one of the old-time greats of poker, who's very good at strategy. It's an easy read. It's a fun read. If you're interested in poker, I 100% recommend it. If there were a few takeaways from the book that I could easily pass along to you, the first one would be that you should fold a lot of your hands. Yeah, I know it's tempting to get action on every hand and see as many flops as you can, but sometimes it's just not worth it. So when you're first starting out, if you don't have a pair or a high card with a relatively high second card, just fold. The best poker players only play about 20% of their cards anyway. So unless you're the big blind and no one's raising you, if you got nothing, fold. The second thing that I could probably easily give you from the book is that you need to keep in mind who you are at the table. Don't worry so much about everyone else right now. Think about you. How are you being perceived? If you only play the good cards, then people will know you've got good stuff when you bet big. This gives you great opportunities to steal pots, even if you've got jack shit. Is that where that comes from? Like a jack and a two? I don't know. You tell me. Okay, one last thing that I'll say about the book. It teaches you to think about the numbers. So look at what's on the table, look what you have in your hand, and think about the odds. If you're the most likely to win the hand, and it costs less to play the pot, percentage-wise, do it. When you read a book like Harrington on Hold'em, he actually goes through hands that he played himself and explains it, explains what his thinking was, explains why he was doing all of these things, and what the other people were likely doing. And when you start seeing 
those examples, seeing someone doing it, you start to figure out, oh, okay, you know, this is what I can do in situations like this. And so you start kind of trying to figure that out a little, and that's when the theory starts coming in a little bit, and you start figuring out things like, oh, these are good hands to raise with. These are good hands to fold. <laughs> I shouldn't be playing those hands. And so you start kind of getting those those types of basics. And so you, you start learning rules like that, and then you have to start playing. You just have to get your feet wet. Um, as Eric told me, you know, I just want you to splash around. By splash around, he meant play online poker. So I traveled across the border to New Jersey where online gambling is legal to play poker on my laptop. You get so many more opportunities to learn because you go through so many more hands, it's just faster. You know, in live poker, you might see 10 hands an hour, you might see 15 hands an hour if it's fast table, you know, it's it's not that many. Online, you're gonna see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hands, right? You see 10 hands in one minute. And I played for hours, like $5 games. I would be sitting there and all of a sudden, it would be much later and I'd be out 75 bucks. You know, you can actually lose a lot of money playing $5 tournaments. <laughs> The first three days that I did this, I lost. I was fucking terrible, I never won, but eventually my luck started to change. I never made money, but I was doing better. And I'm really glad that I did this because if I'd just gone to the casino with my skill level after simply reading the book, I would have been terrible. I needed the experience, I needed the ass kicking, I needed to understand the bets of the other people around the table. Playing online poker, I became much more comfortable and I really started to understand the flow of the game. The other great thing about playing online is you can record your screen. So I would record it and then Eric would review it. And we'd talk through why I did what I did, what I was doing wrong, how I could think about things. Um, and that was, I think, to me, that's the only way to learn. I didn't have anyone review my hands, but I did screen record and I did watch some of it. It was honestly, it was really boring to rewatch it. So I, I probably should have done a better job. Maybe I would be a better player if I did. Maybe I'll do it in the future. I found a lot more success in writing down my hands with pencil and paper. And I certainly got a lot from that. Just being able to review it and kind of understand where I went wrong. So feeling decently prepared, I called my producer, Adam, and asked for a gambling budget. Hyperobject, our company will stake you, Ari Kagan, for $500. And uh, in the tradition of staking someone, we expect 10% uh, of your earnings. Because Hyperobject Industries is the greatest company on earth, they let me bring two of my friends as well. This is Chris. I've put together a last minute strategy, which is basically I'm gonna play rather conservatively. Like I'm just gonna wait until I have something worth playing, but I'm definitely gonna go in on some duds. And this is Tom. I'm gonna try to have a little bit more fun with it. I kind of have no idea what I'm doing. You know the rules of Texas Hold'em? Tom's understanding of the game was limited. Anyway, we got on a plane and flew to Vegas with the mission of playing as much poker for 500 bucks as we possibly could. Now that didn't mean sitting down at a table and blowing all the money on a cash game. We were gonna play tournament poker. In tournament poker, you only have to put a certain amount of money down, usually around 100 bucks for the games that we were playing, and it would go on, generally for around four hours, until there was one person standing. There's a registration period, and that's also the re-entry period. That's to say, if you were eliminated, all you had to do was buy in again, and you were back. Then they start keeping track of exactly, you know, how many players remain until you get paid. And there's a moment in the tournament called the bubble. 
um, where the next person out goes away with zero dollars and zero cents, then the person after that is guaranteed to make money. For the tournaments we were playing, you had to be in the top 10 to 15% to win anything. And mostly the payouts are very top heavy. Everyone else went home with zilch. Any advice for, for when I'm at the table? I think pay attention is the number one piece of advice that I would, that I would give you. If I start seeing that it's a crazy aggressive table and everyone's going insane, you actually do the opposite. Adjustments have to be kind of in the opposite direction. I will tighten up and actually, you know, become much more meticulous about what I do because I realize that, oh, well, they're going to have any two cards. They're going to be attacking. They're going to be doing this. If they're too tight and too passive, you do the opposite. You become the maniac. You become the aggressor. How do you tell if someone's bluffing? What do you look for? That's the million dollar question. Um, and... You know, I'm not huge on tells because I think for the most part, they're pretty meaningless if you haven't played with a person for a long time. Um, but something I write about a lot in The Biggest Bluff is um, hands and the research on hands. So if you're going to be looking at a body part, look at hands and look at how people are betting and how fluid their motions are. But I think more often you're going to find tells in just patterns of play. Try to figure out you know, what story is this person trying to tell me? And does the story make sense? So with that, we hit the tables. All right. Tom and I are going to the first tournament of the trip. It's the 6 p.m. at Caesars Palace, $100 buy-in, no limit hold'em tournament. The question is not if we will win. I'm just hoping that I beat you. Otherwise, I don't really care. I'd like to win the whole thing, and I'd like to make a profit. But more than anything, I just want, I want to be better than you. Good luck. Fold, fold. All right, I'm going in on this one. Ah, fuck, fold. Oh, pocket kings, I'm raising. And I took home the fucking pot, but it's not much. I'm going all in on two tens. And my opponents both have pocket jacks. Ten on the turn, let's go. Oh my god, I got ace king. Okay. Pair of kings, ace high, all in. Okay, they got my left one all in too. No! I'm out of my first game after about an hour and 15 minutes. I made it to the fifth round. I went all in on a king ace. Had a pair, I had a pair of kings after the flop. He had a flush. That was a river card, but, uh, you know, that's poker. Tom would be eliminated about an hour later. What happened? All right, first time at a table in Vegas on the left. Like, nonetheless, I kept thinking I was in like AC. I was like, oh, I was like, is, how would this go in Vegas? I'm like, oh, wait, I'm here. Two downfalls. One was this, when I ordered a drink. And two is getting a little friendly with the guys I was playing with. I noticed that that was a major L. Chris would wake up from his siesta to join us in the 9 p.m. game, which we would all crash out of almost immediately. It's not as bad as it sounds because it gave us time to get the beef wellington at Hell's Kitchen before returning to the tables for the midnight showdown. This was the first time Tom, Chris, and I were all at the same table. And once again, I was the first out. I just got eliminated from my second fucking tournament. This time, I went all in against Tom and he had trip queens and I had a king, a pair of kings and an ace. I thought about a rebuy, but it was 1 a.m. So I opted to walk around the casino floor. About 30 minutes later, Tom would join me. If it wasn't you, I definitely wouldn't have gone all in. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why I told you to do I it. I wanted to beat you. That's fair. 
That was a great bearded man who just with so much style and grace just uh, completely destroyed and dismantled everything that I spent the last 37 minutes building. I had a king and a five and the king and the king was out and and there was a bunch of just scattered other cars. I was like, there's no way this guy has a straight or anything like that or a flush. So he probably has a pair as well. He ended up having two pairs because he had a king and a jack and a jack came out at jack the very the end. River. The jack was the river. Uh, but he turned out to be a really good guy. Stand-up guy, if you will. He came up to me, saw me waiting around, and he gave me some good advice, which I will really take to heart. I forgot most of it, but um, I feel like I came out a better player. Tom and I went to bed to prepare for the next morning's 10 a.m. game, but Chris kept going well into the night. He didn't end up making it to the final table, but he got close, and that was way better than any of us had done so far. After you left, a guy bought in. He's like a little skittish, and he's kind of making these like weird, blind, just these like really heavy-handed bets. I called him on one of his bluffs, and he ended up mucking it, and I won. So I'm like, so this guy's like full of shit, and he doesn't want to show his hand. He's sitting at his seat. He leans back, and I was this was one hand I was out of. So like I rolled my seat back a little bit, and I was like just being nosy and looking at his screen. Bro, he was checking his bank account. It said negative $8,500. <laughs> and he did the thing where he like swiped down to refresh it once or twice. I'm like, bro, this shit ain't going away. Oh, <laughs> Just by fucking refreshing it. What the fuck he thought was going to happen? Negative 8500 Yeah, I was like, damn, all right, he's playing with a purpose. He has some yeah, money to make. Say, he's fucking swinging like he needs a home run. We would once again all crash out of the 10 a.m. tournament. And having spent 80% of our budget in the first 24 hours in Vegas, we decided to cool off at the pool for a little. I was building these like villain personas in my head of all. Of them. That's good. That's good. Like I was like, oh. I was not like I was like fuck this guy, but I was definitely like, all right, he has it out for me. While relaxing at the pool, we found out about a four o'clock game at the Sahara with a buy-in of only sixty dollars. Tom and I have turned into de degenerate gamblers, and we've decided that instead of betting our entire remaining stack on these hundred-dollar games. We're gonna go cheaper. So we're hitting up a $60 game at the Sahara. It's about a mile away. We're leaving right now. If you go in and you keep losing and you keep failing, you have to change something. And being that we don't have a lot of time to learn how to actually play poker, we decided to go a different route. We took a very small amount of magic mushrooms, microdosing as the tech bros call it, and hopped in an Uber to what would be the last game of our trip. The players at these tables weren't like the players at Caesars. These guys were crafty. A group of high IQ Canadians who could calculate the odds faster than the cards could be dealt. A guy from Sweden who played professional hockey and was maybe also a hitman. And then there were the Vegas creatures, people who came to Vegas and never left. A lot of them had bad teeth and growing bald spots. They had the kind of skin that glowed under fluorescent light, and you couldn't really be sure how long they'd spent in the casino. These were the people with bank balances of negative 8,000. We were out of our league. We were all quickly eliminated. Chris went to the slot machines, and Tom and I opted to rebuy. Almost everyone there rebought at some point, except for the guy who moonlighted his kiss, waving his rebuy token around as if it was a brag, showing off that he was better than everyone else by a mile. The hands went around and around, and I played the good stuff. A new player came to our table. He tried to bluff me. I called him, and his chips were reduced by 90% on his first hand. The kiss moonlighter tried to bluff me but he was far too tense for someone who is usually loose and free. He had a chip advantage, 
raising and re-raising, but he couldn't scare me away, eventually mucking his cards after the river. The rebuy period ended. Tom was eliminated, and I took all the chips from a guy who wanted to be a New Yorker but was so obviously from Long Island. As the hours ticked by, the competition became thinner, and suddenly I found myself at the final table. At this point, my vegetable assistance was starting to wear off, turning my brain into a hazy fatigue. I hung around for another hour, eventually finishing sixth. The guy had a straight. I did not see the straight. I had an ace jack. I hate when I don't see the straight. Yeah. I'm like, ah. Uh... I was really close to a straight, but he had it. And, just, and, it, and I, mine didn't hit and he won. But it was a good game. And you know what? I'm happy with how I played this one out. It'd be a lie to say, to some degree, this wasn't a failure. But I'll say that Vegas got a lot smaller after this trip. But yeah, we totally blew the budget on just losing. And deathly afraid of becoming a Vegas creature, we decided our best option was to get as far away from the city as possible. So we drove into the desert and took the rest of our magic mushrooms. After returning to New York, I had to make a call. A call to share the bad news. We all lost everything. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Can I ask this? Were there moments where you were winning? It was real close. You had to get top three to make, make anything. But I would have won all the money back if I'd made it. I, I just, I didn't. Yeah, you were a dream to those types of Vegas creatures. They read you immediately. They knew what you were about immediately. Um, but still, the fact that you had a tournament where you finished in the top third, man, that's, um, that's not easy. I mean, I'm proud of it. I think, like, the nice thing about that, that was the last tournament that I played in, so, like, I, I got better as I went along. But I didn't realize just how much better I'd gotten until I came back to New York and played against my friend Max. But don't hear it from me. Listen to what Max had to say. Ari used a couple very advanced strategies that he pulled from Las Vegas and took my money, took my 20 bucks. I mean, if we were going to end this episode for you on an incredibly sappy note, we'll say that the greatest thing you can win out of poker isn't money, it's friendship. And then we'd hear the sounds of you and your friends laughing and playing cards. And then there'd be a little voiceover. This episode sponsored by the American Poker Association. Poker for friendship. And I was going to end it there. But I was going through my camera roll. And I found an interesting video from when Tom and I were out in the desert. Now this is a podcast, so I'll have to explain to you what's happening. We're at Red Rock, which is a bunch of rocks that are more red than all the other ones. And you can see the lights of Vegas glistening in the distance. Feel the people and the grift of it all. But out there it was silent. And I recorded one final message. Life is poker. Every day you're dealt a hand, and sometimes it's shit, and sometimes it's pocket aces, and it's the days that you go all in that you remember. It's the days that you fold and then flop a straight that you remember. You don't remember just how many times you fold. It's luck, but it's more than luck, because the good players keep winning. And as always... Thanks for listening. Things You Don't Need to Know is a Hyper Object Industries production. 
The show is hosted and written by me, Ari Kagan, and produced by Harry Nelson, Claire Slaughter, Jordan Allen, and also me. Additional help from Thomas Rampino and Christopher Frangoulis. Our executive producer is Adam McKay. If you like things you don't need to know, head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Lastly, I'd really appreciate it if you could give us a review. It really helps the show out. It is currently Sunday night, and now that I've finished this episode, I'm going to go play some poker. Oh, and by the way, I listened to your nickname podcast on the way down to practice. And I have a few nicknames I've called you in the past. For starters, Ferrari. If you say, this is Ferrari, sounds like Ferrari. So we just call you Ferrari. Second, Ariana. But you hated that one. That's why I knew it was a good nickname, because you hated that every time we called you that. Mm-mm. Max, there's a reason we didn't interview you. <laughs>